Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Other Musicals of Meredith Wilson. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of Robert Braun, who is a producer-level member of our Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. Information on how you can become a member of the Backstage Pass Club can be found in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. Thank you to Bob and all of our members for supporting the work of Broadway Nation. What you're about to hear is the second half of my recent conversation with Dominic McHugh, author of The Big Parade, Meredith Wilson's musicals From the Music Man to 1491. In part one, Dominic shared the amazing insights and discoveries that he made during his research into the development of Wilson's first and most famous show, The Music Man. If you missed that episode, you may want to catch up with that before listening to this one. Today, we discuss Wilson's two follow-up hits, The Unsinkable Molly Brown and Here's Love, and his heartbreaking failure, 1491. And of course, there's even more discussion of The Music Man, more comparing and contrasting it with West Side Story, as well as comparing the careers and output of Meredith Wilson and Leonard Bernstein, some of which may send hardline Bernstein fans into a tizzy. Dominic and I even get into a bit of a disagreement on exactly when the golden age of Broadway ended. I think you'll enjoy it. Just one note before we begin, Meredith Wilson is without a doubt one of the major exceptions to the central premise of this podcast. He was not Jewish, queer, black, an immigrant, or a child of an immigrant. No, along with George Abbott, Bob Fosse, and just a small handful of other key inventors of the Broadway musical, Meredith Wilson is one of the exceptions that proves the rule. Here we go. I begin by asking Dominic what Meredith Wilson does after The Music Man. 
how does he follow up on this giant, giant hit? Well, one of his ideas was to write a sequel to it, The Son of the Music Man, which again, I found fascinating that he was so invested in the life of this work that he tried to create more of it. And indeed, it wasn't really that related to the original Music Man, although it's called The Son of the Music Man, but it's got sort of elements of the same kinds of figures in it. So that's one of the things he tried to do and then abandon the idea. He just explored lots of things, as far as I can see, and ended up with the unsinkable Molly Brown, which is interesting partly because he was just coming on board with a project that already existed. The book by Richard Morris already existed in some form. Other people had been approached. Irving Berlin, Burton Lane had been considered for Molly Brown before him. So all of that is a bit curious. When he'd written the biggest hit of the year, you'd think he would be very choosy and maybe wanting to write something else bespoke, something else original. But I think that the stress of spending all those years writing the book meant that he was ready to just write music and lyrics. He got on very well, as far as I can see, with Richard Morris, the book writer of Molly Brown. And I think it's a pretty good show. And personally, I don't think it needs fixing. I think it's a pretty serious and entertaining piece. But clearly, it's not on the same sort of high plane as Music Man. But I'd love to just see a traditional production of it because I reckon it'd be pretty fun. I have seen it. Actually, I've seen it in Summerstock. Mm -hmm. And I also saw the revised version of it that they did just a few years ago, which Mm -hmm. I thought was not as good as the original, even with some of the limitations of the original. I feel like it's three quarters of a good show. When you sit down to see it, it doesn't quite add up. But I was interested to see you go through (laughs) the various versions of the show. And it seemed like there was some earlier versions that might have worked better than the version they ended up with, especially with the framing device of the Titanic. Yeah, and a really fun idea, the idea that you start in the lifeboat with Molly saying, I'm going to tell you the story of my life. And then the whole thing becomes more framed as a tale rather than watching biography. The other thing that I think would have helped is just that Molly disappears a bit vocally in the second act. She had this big song called One Day at a Time. It's a really good song, a really big number. And I think Tammy Grimes couldn't cope with it. He was playing Molly in the original production, and so they got rid of it. I think if she'd had that moment of sort of musical articulation in the second act, that maybe that would lift it somewhat. Because the scenes in the second act actually read very well on the page. It becomes quite serious drama, but it's not working so well as a musical. The role of the music tends to be a bit more incidental. It lacks the sort of till there was you kind of moment. But this song could have done it. So I think if I were to revive the unsinkable Molly Brown, I would maybe put the framing device back in in that song and maybe one or two other little bits and pieces. But otherwise, I think it's a fun musical comedy. It is generic. I think that's the main issue with it that I can see. It's all a bit too familiar, the bits and pieces. Seems a little reminiscent of Annie Get Your Gun and other shows that we've seen before and possibly better shows. Yeah. But as you say, it has some terrific material in it. When you're all alone or with somebody else Never were with a three-toe girl or discontented Horrible example Like the girl whose name was Carrie She carried a chance to everybody else But her I had to marry Or die, die, die Had to marry, marry or die, die, die One of the issues is, does he start to repeat himself in this? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? You go into that in the book from both perspectives. Yeah, I think there was a pressure on him to repeat himself. And at the same time, the things that he had developed in The Music Man had worked well for him. So why wouldn't he? Rogers and Hammerstein do the same things again and again and again in their shows. And indeed, several big Rogers and Hammerstein songs were actually written for other shows like 
Getting to Know You was actually written for Cable to sing in South Pacific, all the rest of it. I don't blame him for doing it. I ain't down yet. You're down, Molly. Holler, Uncle. I ain't never shouting Uncle to you and nobody, because I ain't never down. Come on, Molly, you're tuckered. Why don't you quit? Sure I'm tuckered and I might give out. But there'll come a time when nothing, no nobody, wants me down like I wants me up. Up where the people are, up where the talking is, up where the joke's going on. Now look here, I am important to me. Ain't no bottom to no pile. I mean much more to me than I mean to anybody I ever knew. Certainly more than I mean to any sidewalk yazzy hampers like you guys. Go ahead, break my arm. Me say, Uncle, Hoot. doesn't make a bit of difference for you to keep saying I'm down till I say so too. Did you ever try stepping on a piss ant? Well, there's one now. Jumping, stumping, thinking you got him, thinking he's quit. He don't think so. There it goes. And you can be positive, sure I'm as good as any piss ant that ever lived. Oh, I hate that word down. But I love that word up, because up means hope, and that's just what I got. But sometimes it's a bit, well, Molly sings a bit like Harold Hill and a lot of this rhythmic dialogue. Counterpoint numbers again, which are fun, but it's the sort of same sort of trick. It is a bit like plus 50% or maybe it's only 50% of the Music Man or something that is lacking a bit in the individual musical expression. And things that are different are actually the more operatic moments where he's writing these things for Johnny. Said goodbye and walked away Walked away from all I know From the sky and the trees and the snow-capped mountains Said goodbye and left forever Left my door, turned out my light Left my friends These stormy weather friends of mine Hood straying along Whether wrong or right Oh, I could say goodbye It's quite musically and harmonically complex, but at the same time, that takes us very much backwards, more into the Bernstein territory, actually. It's more like Tony or something, singing in this very legit kind of style. But I have sympathy for him, as you say, what on earth do you do when you've written a show that everyone raves about as much as that? And the competition was West Side Story. The competition was Gwen Verdon in Redhead. The competition was so many big performers. You could go to see Lena Horne in Jamaica while The Music Man was playing, and yet you wanted to go and see The Music Man. It's a curious situation. Mary Martin was on Broadway. Ethel Merman was on Broadway. And yet people were flocking to see The Music Man still, which reminds us of the impact of that. 
But how on earth could he live up to it? I really don't know. It's the My Fair Lady problem again, as in Camelot could never live up to My Fair Lady, whatever it did. Even if it hadn't had its challenges, it still would have been not My Fair Lady. But there's a confidence problem, isn't there, with both of them, with Lerner and Lowe and with Wilson writing those follow-up projects. They're not so sure-footed. They both had production problems. Clearly, Wilson didn't get on with Dory Sherry, who was the director of Molly Brown, and that was a problem for the book writer too. Wilson and, and Morris were very clearly against Sherry and so maybe a different director would have brought the thing in in a better form and similarly we know with Camelot that everyone either died or nearly died along the way it's a bit of a problem but still there is something about neither show went into rehearsal properly finished in the right form to just play whereas Fair Lady apart from one scene there were relatively few there were changes but they weren't big changes and the same with Music Man the odd song went in and out but basically it opened and it was great it was ready to go it was ready to go stay away molly please stay away cause i could never say goodbye to don't go away broadway nation will be back right after this short break Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50. 50 at factormeals.com slash bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, I've seen many, many productions of The Music Man, and I've seen Molly Brown at least twice, I think. But I've never seen a production of Here's Love. Ooh. And <laughs> I've seen two. Oh, wow. I win. <laughs> you win. You absolutely win. You win the Meredith Wilson sweepstakes. This show has many more challenges than mm -hmm. Molly Brown, although for the first time, it's based on an existing source, which you think, if we look at the history of the Broadway musical, that makes things easier to start with an existing source. But in this case, it didn't work out. And a great source, Miracle on 34th Street. What a great movie. It has musical written all over it. And you kind of think if MGM had tried to turn it into a musical with a score by Hugh Martin in 1948, then probably it would have been a great musical, that sort of thing. But the problem was that by the 1960s, Broadway had really started to change. There was a sense that it needed to be brought up to date. And Wilson and I think was quite right in thinking that if you're going to do a good adaptation, it needs to bring something new to the table. There needs to be a reason to do it. I think of the famous Sondheim complaint about My Fair Lady gilding the lily, that Sondheim thinks that Pygmalion was great enough, why bother with the music kind of thing. Having identified this problem, I think Wilson thought, we need to make changes. And unfortunately, almost all of the instincts were wrong. Although again, there were big production problems. I think that he lacked collaborators that could really steer him in a creative direction. And I was struck by a number of really good songs that were cut before they even went into rehearsal that illustrate moments in the story that aren't in Here's Love as it finally stands. It's an interesting conundrum. That must be fascinating to go back into the archives and discover these songs that you are the only person who's heard in however many, you know, 50 years that's even aware that these songs exist and to then go, well, that would make the show so much better if that song had survived to Broadway. Yeah, it is. It can be frustrating. Although I've done a number of concerts with my students at the university here in Sheffield over the years where we've looked at a particular show or several shows and actually played songs that were cut from them. And they always satisfy my brain, at least, to be able to hear them and play them once. We did some from The King and I a couple of years ago. We did a whole concert of cut songs from the music mom which is really interesting. And some of them aren't so good, but there's a really good one for Tommy and Zanita called Fireworks, for example. If you really wanted to make a change to the music man, I would stick fireworks in just to kind of give them some musical moment of their own. You could just do a snippet version of it. The mayor had a song called The Think System, which was a, a bit of a silly little thing, quite short. But again, I would love to just see it stuck back in the show and think, oh, well, audiences could have some surprise. The most recent revival of Hello, Dolly began the second act with Penn in my pocket. People loved just encountering something new in this incredibly traditional production of a very familiar show. I think there is scope to do stuff around that. We didn't talk about Tommy and Zanita earlier, but I'm glad you brought it up. They are the second couple in the show, but their part got reduced down to basically dance roles, which works very well. But mm -hmm. I'm hoping that in this new production, they will play up the cultural issues that are happening there. Tommy is named Gilas on purpose because it's some kind of Eastern European immigrant 
immigrants community, the immigration story of the music man between Mrs. Peru and the Gilises, who are all outcasts by this community, is part of what's wrong with this community, but that rarely gets noticed. It's there, but people don't really notice it. Yes, it's the equivalent of the West Side Story stuff, which is another commonality with West Side Story. And yes, Wilson was clearly very much aware of this stuff, but I guess they're usually played in such a cutesy way. And the idea that Tommy even has a family usually gets kind of lost. He's just a kid like all the other kids in the show. And there's no sense of him having an identity. But you're quite right. It would not be that difficult to stage it in a way that would beef that up and maybe address people's concerns about the landscape of the show and who these characters are. Yeah, they're two star-crossed lovers that fall in love during a dance at the gym. Sounds familiar. Here's Love is a hit, however. In the literal definition of what makes a hit on Broadway, it pays back. It's interesting because you describe it as much more entertaining than my perception of it is, which is great (laughs) because you know much more about it than I do. But I think we view it as sort of a failure and it was not really that. Well, it didn't fail. I think there are casting issues about the original production that the people in it were not very exciting. The star is Janice Page, who's the only really big name in it. And she's vocally past her best by this stage. And you can hear on the cast album, she really doesn't sound great. I think it's a bad cast album in my opinion it's badly recorded the performances aren't very compelling and so you really notice the things in the lyrics for example that are not up to scratch i did see it a couple of years ago here in the uk in liverpool at the everyman theater and i was really struck by how well the second act plays actually that the court scene and all of that business is really fun the audience really responded to this moment where macy stands up and says that man over there is santa claus and does it in song which is different from the film that man over there is Santa Claus, I know, I know, I know. I can tell by the crinkle on the bridge of his nose, the wink of his eye on the twinkle of his toes, and the joy wherever he goes, that man is he. Makes song have some kind of purpose in the show. I think in general the show is lacking that kind of purpose, but it wasn't a flop, and Richard Kiley took over later on, Lisa Kirk was in it, and I imagine they would have been more exciting people they would have probably sold it better than the initial leads. It was maybe one of those things that needs a refresh and I would stick one or two songs back in and maybe revisit one or two things in the book. But I think it's something that actually could be quite fun. I can tell by the crinkle on the bridge of his nose, the wink of his eye and the twinkle of his toes and, and the joy wherever he goes That man is must have suffered because of She Loves Me being on around the same time, another Christmassy show based on, or at least partly based on a classic film that everybody knew. And of course, She Loves Me does it in such a clever way. In fact, it's more like The Music Man, as in the use of music is so unusual in She Loves Me and his love is much more conventional. That's clearly a bit of an issue. It seems like Wilson is getting more traditional. He's in his 60s now, I'm assuming. For me, the most fascinating part of your book was the discussion of the the playbill note or the program note that he wrote for Here's Love, and then Stephen Sondheim's response to that. How did you discover that? And tell us a little bit about your approach to that. Yeah, so Wilson wrote this piece which appeared in newspapers and then was reproduced in the playbill for Here's Love called Evil Times. In it, he says, evil times of 
befallen the theatre. Let's get back to the good old days. Entertainment has become a dirty word, all of this kind of thing. So very reactionary and quite pointed. This was not consistent with his character in the 1950s, where he was much more pushing the envelope himself. And then Sondheim wrote a response to it and sort of said, actually, the evil times that fall in the theatre are that people like Meredith Wilson keep reproducing themselves and trying to do the same thing again, that they're not fresh anymore. And, you know, what are these good old days that you're referring to, where Wilson was trying to say how wholesome Shakespeare was, and sometimes says, well, have you seen Richard II? And have you seen Hamlet? You know, what's wholesome about them? Suddenly, Wilson is definitely at odds with the culture. And Sondheim becomes the man much more of the day. But those cuttings of those articles were in Wilson's archive. They were at the Great American Songbook Foundation. I just found them in a scrapbook along with it all. So it's interesting he kept them. And of course, Sondheim has been a champion of Wilson as being an innovator and talks about he's one of the first people to use rap in a theatrical concept before there is rap and how groundbreaking it was. But it does seem like Wilson is starting to, and this is maybe natural with people as they age. Also, I do feel like all the writers of that generation were feeling like they were under attack and under assault and the world was changing around them in a way that they didn't understand. What year is this? Here's Love, 1963. 1963. So still fairly early. The golden age, in my mind, is still going strong. I view the cutoff as hair, basically, because I think we go through Hello, Dolly and all those golden age shows. Other aspects and avant-garde start coming into the Broadway musical with Man of La Mancha and things like that. But still, I feel like that golden age tradition just goes right up to, to the end of the 60s. Other people see it differently. We haven't gotten to the age of rock yet, really. Elvis is around, but it's not really affected Broadway by any chance. Oh, I disagree. I think it has affected Broadway. It's affected Broadway because Broadway music is very much not the pop music of the day. That is why it isn't so much the golden age for me in this 60s period describing is because actually suddenly the whole thing has shrunk in impact and in relevance whereas this was the stuff that was in everyone's homes in the 1950s suddenly actually it's not what everyone is listening to anymore if you think about was it 1954 when all four main tv channels broadcast that rogers and hammerstein tv special with all the scenes from all the original casts you can't imagine that happening in the 60s in the same way and that is the shifting culture and to me the golden age is about this sort of the avant-garde is there but in populist form in the 50s and by the 60s it's hard for me to see hello dolly as avant-garde even though i love it i don't think funny girl is avant-garde and it's also a bit 60s musically you know it has this slight vegas aspect in songs like don't rain on my parade it's become poppy in a way that we didn't tend to see in the 50s to me, everything has shifted. And as you say, we've got people in crisis. Frederick Lowe retires, Hammerstein dies, Rogers tries to team up with Sondheim and it doesn't go well. You know, Stein manages to keep going, which is quite unusual, but almost everyone has given up. That funny bridging generation of Jerry Herman and Buck and Harnick, they weren't around for very long, really. They didn't write shows of the style of the moment for very long. And to me, it's not like Sondheim in the 70s or even Lloyd Webber, who I'm not a fan of. But you can see that there's that Lloyd Webber time. I don't think that Bock and Harnick and Herman ever had really an innovative time, even though I really, really like their shows. For me, there is a clear point of articulation. Things are beginning to decay in, at the end of the 50s with the failure of Camelot, with the fact that The Sound of Music is just not anything like Oklahoma and Carousel or South Pacific in terms of ambition and innovation. So, run it's interesting. Over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
of course, I was a child in the 1960s, so I view it from a slightly different perspective because one after another of those giant hit movie musicals came out, all Broadway shows. So my childhood in those years was made up of The Music Man and My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music and all the others. Oliver, that is the 1960s to me. And then the record cabinet in my parents' house of Hello, Dolly and Fiddler on the Roof. And that was dominating the culture to a great extent. Not that rock and roll wasn't there as well. And of course, by the time we get to the Beatles coming in, but even they're recording Till There Was You. Just one. Just one, but still, it got there. That was not a major record, though. No, but it was on a major record. It was. There was love all around But I never heard it singing No, I never heard it at all Till there was you Let's go on to talk about 1491, which is the saddest part of your book, I have to say, but fascinating. That really is a sort of heartbreaking slog as he tries to get this thing to happen. One more show in his 70s at this point. Yeah, poor old Meredith. It's a shame that as far as I'm aware, there's no film of the production available unless there might be one hidden away somewhere, but I've never seen a film because I do think that the highlight of it was probably the sets. I've heard live audio recordings of it and you can hear hear people applauding when the scene changes because it's so amazing. Oliver Smith, the designer of My Fair Lady and West Side Story, but more than a decade on and doing more amazing things. The show, unfortunately, had two problems. One is it was a terrible idea. It's a show about Columbus's preparations to go and find the new world. He's not even really sailing away or doing all those violent things that he did. He's just doing the conniving things in the background in preparation for it. That is not a great topic for a Broadway musical and very much counter to the civil rights movement which was very much underway by this point. You know, framing Columbus as this attractive hero, as a kind of Harold Hill kind of figure and someone that can be maybe redeemed through love, this is a terrible idea and this is why the show is not revivable because it's an offensive idea. But the other problem was that everybody died so it was a bit like Camelot for Wilson. Ed Ains, the guy that had brought him the idea of the show, died. Frank Lesser, his mentor died his second wife died and so he was facing a lot of bereavement while trying to develop this thing and I guess it must have been difficult to manage him and in addition the whole thing was kind of a bit more classical the score is really really interesting it's unusual innovative it really doesn't sound like the music man Ed Lester the producer started campaigning to try and get him to write numbers that were more like the music man which is an interesting piece of documentation in that it's not Wilson wanting to sound like 76 Prombones it's the man in charge of the money. But the style of the thing is just so far apart now from things like Hair and all of those late 60s shows, Sweet Charity, even Cabaret. It's too operetta-ish. It's style and configuration. In a funny way, it doesn't sound that old-fashioned when you listen to it. It's in a funny zone. It's not commercial in any way. And I think some scenes went down well. Cheetah Rivera is playing the sort of girlfriend, the lover. You can hear she gets a big hand on all the recordings. But I think even then that the idea of the show is not that attractive to people. 
and the reviews are terrible. There are one or two reasonable reviews, but it did not go down well. It never even made it to Broadway and it's all very sad. And because of the subject matter being so impossible, it's sad to think that his final show can't even be saved. You wouldn't even want to put it on at musicals in Mufti or somewhere so we can just see what this thing is like. In my view, it shouldn't be aired, but we should talk about it. Some of the songs could be... I was going to say, are there songs that should be... should be brought forward definitely a number of them we need a new meredith wilson songbook but no one's publishing songbooks anymore but if that were to happen then we could publish some of the songs and then at least we could hear some of this thing and the show only played in california correct as part of the los angeles civic light opera which is something that most people don't even know happened but it was quite a big deal for many years and that's also where kismet another show that's hard to revive and Mm -hmm. song of norway came from they had a tradition of bringing shows from there to broadway correct and vice versa, that Leicester would bring big Broadway shows to the West Coast. So My Fair Lady was part of the same season as 1491, and it would have been some version of the original sets and quite, you know, a really classic My Fair Lady. It was advertised with the Hirschfeld caricature, all the rest of it. They were used to seeing quality. If I remember correctly, I think there was a revival of Annie Get Your Gun with Debbie Reynolds and really high quality, big Hollywood names performing this stuff. So it was a big gig and a big deal. And it was a subscriber theatre. So people would buy seats a bit like encores for all three shows in the season or however many productions they were doing. So it ought to have been a great place to do this, but sadly not. And like most artists, it's hard to give up. It's hard to stop. Wilson toys around with a few more ideas. Mm-hmm. What were those ideas? I can't to... even remember them all off the top of my head, but the, the one that's memorable is Dennis the Menace, the cartoon right. strip. He spent a number of years looking at that and he was petitioned by the cartoonist to consider doing that. But we were in the 1970s by now. Wilson doesn't need the money, the hassle. Although he contemplated three or four projects, all of them, it was just a few conversations is my understanding of the situation and he was much more interested actually in developing his legacy and associating more with the music man because it was such a long time since he'd had a major hit by the 1970s he would do more and more interviews around the music man i think his sister probably played quite a big role in giving him the initial ideas or working up the initial ideas for the music man with him and she died i think when she died he became more and more comfortable basically implying that the music man was something that happened to him was if it sort of passed through him passively something like that it is a shame but it was clearly time for him to quit you can see why he wouldn't want to have another 1491 and what could he do it was the same problem for Richard Rogers who similarly really struggled in the 1970s and for that matter Alan J. Lerner had a great revival of My Fair Lady in 1976 and a terrible time with 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue his new show with Leonard Bernstein ran a week they were all struggling despite coming up with really interesting work and having actually quite good ideas but it wasn't their time anymore and that's how popular culture works unfortunately and as you point out unlike those others wilson only had one show really to look back on he didn't have this canon of shows as a claim to fame absolutely and frank lesser pointed this out to him i think wilson was ready to quit after he has love and he should have done simply because he'd had enough and he had this huge career is that not enough but frank started having a go at him and saying goodness me you need a body of works because even though Harold Rome is so much more mediocre compared to you and your talent, people respect Harold Rome because he's written 15 shows or whatever and it has this big body of work. You need a body of works. So then he embarks on 1491 and it somewhat sank. 
I think Lesser was correct, and you point this out in the book. Now we only remember the Music Man. We don't remember any of that incredible career that he had prior to the Music Man. That kind of career doesn't last, doesn't linger in your mind. So we look at him as a one-hit wonder, even though he was, or a one-and-a-half-hit wonder, however you want to say it, two. Let's let's give him two. Him two, yeah. <laughs> I think but, if we can count Wonderful Town, then I think we can count the unsinkable Molly Brown, frankly. I'll agree with you there. So he's a two-hit wonder, and yet it's really unfair because he was a major force in show business for 55 years before the first of those hits. But it was on the radio, and the radio was something we just don't remember, even as an incredible cultural force that it was. It's disappeared entirely. So that's interesting how perceptive Frank Lesser was in looking Mm. forward when he sort of gives that pep talk to Meredith Wilson. Frank Lesser was so amazing. I find it curious, though, that Wilson's work on The Great Dictator and The Little Foxes is forgotten, because those are two really big films, and they remain films that are canon, basically. They're yeah. not forgotten films, they're not minor films. He only worked on two films, and they were major for completely different reasons, and his contributions to them are distinctive. People go on a lot about the role of music in The Great Dictator, for example. Well, he was making it all happen, even if Charlie Chaplin was coming up with a lot of the ideas. It's funny how people manage to appreciate Bernstein in all his many facets. It's the thing that's admired about Bernstein is the Young People's Concerts and Omnibus and West Side Story and the symphonies and Mass. And we hear about On the Waterfront. We hear about his film score. Exactly. And yet poor old Meredith, people don't go on about his symphonies. I think the first one is actually quite good, the second one less so. But then Bernstein's symphonies aren't that amazing in my view. His symphonic work is patchy, let's say, which you can also say about Wilson. Clearly Bernstein is this titanic figure, but then And when you look at the details, actually, Wilson has so many of the same assets in his career and a lot of success. And he moved on at the right time with most of it. 1491 is the big mistake, really, because apart from his dreadful novel, Who Did What to Fidelia? But most of what he did was really successful. It's bewildering. How do you have a life like that? Well, you have helped to set the record straight very much with this really amazing book. What's next? Are you working on something new? The main thing I'm working on is a book about the film, The Bandwagon. I'm editing a new series of books for Oxford on film musicals. They're going to be sort of short books, affordable books. There isn't a lot of literature on film musicals compared to Broadway. I've got a colleague who's written a book about Love Me Tonight that's coming out, 1932, Maurice Chevalier, Rosen Hart. Someone's writing about La La Land at the moment, has interviewed all the creatives. I'm doing The Bandwagon based on archival research out of that. All-time favorite movies, The Bandwagon. It's great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking with us today on Broadway Nation. Thank you so much for reading the book in so much detail and so reflectively. These have been amazing questions and I really appreciate them. The depth of your engagement with it is great to be reminded of the book because of course I finished it last year now. Reflecting back on it is really interesting. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again to Dominic McHugh, whose recent book is The Big Parade, Meredith Wilson's Musicals from The Music Man to 1491. I highly recommend it. Interestingly, the movie The Bandwagon will come up again on the next episode of Broadway Nation, when my guest will be Kevin Winkler, who is the author of Everything is Choreography, the musical theater of Tommy Toon. It's a fascinating book as well, and I hope you will join us. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. 
For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.